Welcome to the New Books Network. But he will be saved, but only as through fire. So it's not heaven, it's not hell, it's after death, it's at the judgment. And it is a state of being where people are being purified of imperfections. That, my friend, is an excellent definition of purgatory. Catholics believe in purgatory, a state of purification and expiation that helps us get home to God after death. To Protestants and others, this may seem outlandish and outmoded, a way of thinking. So I asked Tim Staples about it. He's Director of Apologetics and Evangelization at Catholic Answers, and he was himself a Protestant in his earlier years. He explains church teachings and supplies a thorough scriptural defense of them as we talk about purgatory, heaven, hell, and eternity on Almost Good Catholics. No one is predestined to hell. Sorry, John Calvin. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Odinitz, and I get to ask interesting people who've thought about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this format and relationship and dialogue and back and forth may help us approach the truth and have a really good time doing it. And should you want to take the conversation a step further, I invite you to please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Tim Staples. Tim is Director of Apologetics and Evangelization at Catholic Answers, and he often participates in the Catholic Answers Live call-in radio show and also the Catholic Answers podcast. Though he was raised as a Baptist and used to be an Assembly of God youth minister, his search for understanding and for truth led him to the Catholic Church. For a time, he was even a seminarian. But now he's married with six children, and he teaches about the faith as a layperson. He's the author of Behold Your Mother, a biblical and historical defense of the Marian doctrines in 2014, and 20 Answers, Mary, in 2016. It's not every day I have a Catholic apologist on my apologetics podcast, so I'd like to ask you about our very Catholic doctrines of purgatory and related topics. And welcome to the show, Tim. It is great to be with you, man. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I understand you have a joke. Yeah. um, Now, of course... I'm going to wink when I say this is a true story now, but all right. um, there was a priest who just, and and I know we've never met anyone like this, but he was just an awful (laughs) preacher, just a terrible preacher. And he tried everything. He tried, you know, writing out his homilies. He put people to sleep. He tried memorizing them. (laughs) He would forget them and he would, you know, he was just awful. And so he went to his bishop and, and explained to the bishop, you know, I have this problem. I'm a terrible preacher. What do I do? Well, the bishop said, you know what? I tell you what I did. I found that just by telling a funny story at the beginning, just try every week. And he said, let me give you an example of what I did just, just this past Sunday at the cathedral. He said, he began his homily by saying, my brothers and sisters, I have a confession to make to you. I'm in love with a woman. And now he pauses and he says, you got to imagine this, Father. When I said that, I said, I'm in love with a woman. All the blue-haired women in the front row, front (laughs) few rows, you can see their jaws hang open. They're like, oh, my gosh, what is he saying, right? So he said, I knew I got him. He says, I'm in love with a woman. And I have to confess, she is a married woman. 
And by that time, the whole place is, is in a panic, right? <laughs> and then, of course, I tell them, and that woman's name is the Blessed Virgin Mary. And then there's, oh, and people laugh. And I just go right into my homily. And I'm telling you, it's wonderful. And so Father's excited. He's like, oh, my gosh, I can't wait to get up and preach. And so here it is, Sunday. He starts his sermon by saying, he decided to steal the bishop's uh, joke, right? He says, my brothers and sisters, I have a confession to make. I am in love with a woman. And I have to confess, she is married. But uh, I can't remember her name. <laughs> <laughs> so at any rate. Uh, poor, poor guy, poor guy, yeah. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I thought, so the I thought story didn't gonna, help yeah. him very much, huh? <laughs> yeah. I thought the married woman was the holy church. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <That's>, yeah, <that's, laughs> That's very good. Um, uh, thank you. Uh, so, okay. So the most Catholic topic I can think of is purgatory. And yes. uh, I bet you get this asked a lot. And I bet this was something that you had to sort out when you were a Protestant and uh, swimming the Tiber over to our side. Uh, Absolutely. How you, you know what? Yeah. I got to tell you, Chris, the, mm-hmm. the, the topic of purgatory is the number one. In fact, I wrote a blog post for Catholic Answers at our Catholic.com. Uh, we don't call it a blog any, anymore. It's Catholic Answers Magazine online. But, uh, and it's called, I, th- I think it's called Purgatory, or Is Purgatory in the Bible? Yeah. Or it may be Purgatory is in the Bible. It's one of those two. It is the most viewed article we have put up uh, at Catholic.com of, you know, we, we've got over 100,000 articles there because Purgatory just seems to be huge. And I know it was for me as well. Mm-hmm. But when, when I was Protestant, I thought, you know, you Catholics are nuts here. But did you have anything <laughs> specific to, uh, to ask about? It? Yeah. So from from. OK, no, that's a great point. And I'm sure that also has to do with the person who wrote that blog, not just the topic. But I, <laughs> I would say that. Uh, Look, the, the mystery of purgatory is that we speak about it so concretely as if we ha- understand uh, its its dimensions and its and its length and, and things like that. And yet everything right. in the afterlife is so far beyond the veil that it's very hard for us to understand um, or speak about things the way we speak about, like, okay, I'm going to fly over to Denver and I'm going to be at the Denver airport. It's going to look like this. Um, sort of after you die, who really knows? And we don't know how much of it is uh, concrete, how much of it is metaphorical. But here's something that we Catholics speak about as if we really knew, you know? So what do Catholics say? I'm looking at the, at the catechism here around 1030, 1030 yes. um, about purgatory. Right. And um, I wonder if you could explain what is the, what is the authoritative view on, on purgatory and how do you think about it? Right, right. Well, yeah, that's an excellent little section there. It's only three Paragraphs, and I recommend all the listeners to read it because it, it it's really succinct and wonderfully stated in the Catechism, sections 1030 to 1032. But I, I like the way you phrase the question because you know what do we know? You know, this is after death. So what do we know about the afterlife? Well, what we know is what has been revealed because obviously. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 says, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love them. So, or love him. So, yes, the afterlife is beyond anything we can comprehend. But what's interesting 
is, and by the way, the catechism in one of the, the footnotes here actually footnotes a text of, of scripture that has been used traditionally from the very beginning concerning purgatory, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. And that's very significant because notice St. Paul had just said, eye has not seen, ear has not heard concerning what uh, is to come. And yet, in the very next chapter, St. Paul, of course, the Holy Spirit through St. Paul, reveals certain things about the afterlife. And so what we can know about the afterlife is what has been revealed to us in Scripture and tradition as it's interpreted by the magisterium of the church. And what I, I, I call it St. Augustine's fa- favorite text because actually he... he cites it many times and in many different works concerning purgatory, and that is 1 Corinthians 3, uh, verses 11 through 15. And I I argue, Chris, Uh that this text is really remarkably clear. I mean, all of our dogmas are not exactly clear, explicitated in Scripture, but this is a pretty clear rendering. If you go to 1 Corinthians 3, 11... I'm I'm looking at it. Do you want to read it? Yeah. No other foundation can anyone lay except that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation, now what foundation? He just said the foundation of our lives, which is Jesus Christ. But if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, Hmm. each man's work. Now, pause for a second there. Obviously, Paul is referring to each man's work as gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, or stubble. And that's significant because these works are about to be judged by God. Some of them are going to burn up, and some of them are going to endure. And so the gold, silver, precious stones represent that, you know, the works that are done out of pure motives, for example, and endure for a reward, and be that eternal life or the rewards in the afterlife. Now, the wood, hay, straw represent venial sins or, uh, you know, punishment due for sin, things that were not done out of the right motivations and that sort of thing. So let's continue now. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work, that is the silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, will become manifest for the day. Now, many translations will capitalize that day there, and that's actually uh, a good translation because it's talking about not just any day, but the day of judgment. Now, whether that's Mm -hmm. the particular judgment or the final, it doesn't matter. It's talking about the judgment after death. Very important that we understand that. For the day of judgment will disclose it. And we know that because text of scripture like Hebrews 9.27 tells us it's appointed for each man to die and then the judgment, right? Each man to die once and then the judgment. So when it says each man's work will be manifest for the day, we can say the day of judgment will disclose it because it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Very important. Fire represents in, in scripture in a multitude of different places purification. In fact, many scripture scholars, both Protestant and Catholic, often will footnote here or refer back to Malachi chapter 4, 
and the the scene there, the prophetic scene of the Messiah judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and he is like a refiner's fire. And so here, you know, we have this depicted because it will be revealed with fire. Now, of course, this is a, a, a symbol. It's a metaphor because there can be no fire, obviously, literally burning up stuff at the judgment, the particular judgment yeah. <laughs> in a particular way, because there's no bodies there. It's, we're talking about pure spirits. But at any rate, it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If mm-hmm. the work which any man has built on the foundation survives, that's what I mentioned before, notice, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Now, I have to pause just for a moment because I can remember when I was Protestant and I, I would say, well, it's the work that's being pure, you know, burned up. It's not the person, right? Well, clearly yes. that's not correct because it says if the work any man has built on the foundation, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. It's, it's metaphysically absurd to try to detach the works from the person, right? It's, mm-hmm. if you tell a lie, you're a liar. If you tell, commit adultery, you're an adulterer until you're forgiven and purified. So if any man's yes. work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And I can remember years ago, 35 years ago when I had the revelation of the truth uh, of, of this, that clearly we're not talking about heaven here because there's imperfection. And we know Revelation 21, 27 says no unclean thing can enter into heaven. Habakkuk chapter one, verse 13 says, God is of pure eyes than to even behold the slightest iniquity. So this is not heaven, mm. but we also know it's not hell because these folks are being saved, right? If any man's mm-hmm. work, he will suffer. But he will be saved, but only as through fire. So it's not heaven. It's not hell. It's after death. It's at the judgment. And it is a state of being where people are being purified of imperfections. That, my friend, is an excellent definition of purgatory. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that in the past people have said like, oh, well, if you do this, that's this many hundreds of years of purgatory. And if you give right, this right. kind of, a, a, you know, and um, oh, I'm forgetting what it's called, a, um, a partial uh, or plenary indulgence. Yes. Thank you. If you if you purchase this indulgence or sponsor this mass, so then you'll have this. But that seems right. to me like we don't think that anymore. Right. And that it probably that cost us the Protestant Reformation in the first place. Right. Uh, but one thing to clarify yeah, is that is commonly misrepresented by folks outside of the church. The church never taught that the you know you you hear about a thousand days or a hundred days and this sort of thing. It did not mean a thousand days or, or, or a period of time in purgatory. The days were used to sort of differentiate the levels of merit involved with whatever the particular penance was. For example, if you were given, and and remember back, we're talking Mm -hmm. about in the second, uh, third centuries, even the latter first century, but certainly into the second century and third centuries, uh, they were often given very rigoristic penances where, you know, they would have to pray, not allowed to go in the church and pray for, you know, days before they would be readmitted into the church and and that sort of thing. And so there was confusion about the days thing. No, 
the the point was that because of the fact when the Pope exercises the keys of the kingdom and declares that this particular act of penance, let's say praying, you know, a, a rosary a day mm-hmm. for now, I'm, I'm sort of anachronistically re- reading the rosary back into the second century, but just for argument's sake, pray the rosary every day for five days. And that will represent a hundred days. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean a hundred days off your purgatory time, but it represents because the Pope has exercised the keys of the kingdom, and in effect, your acts of penance are being joined together with the infinite merits of Christ and the merits of the saints and martyrs who have gone before us. Their merits kind of supersize your uh, works. And so it would be just as if you had prayed for a hundred days instead yeah. of five days. So, you know, that that's just a way of the church helping folks to understand what we're talking about when we talk about purgatory and uh, in the idea of indulgences, that is the Pope exercising the keys of the kingdom in remitting temporal punishment due for sin. And so it's not a matter of uh, this you know, is going to take time off your purgatory. No, this is talking about the merits of the works works involved. Now, what Paul VI did in 1966 is he completely overhauled the indulgence system. He got rid of all of the day's uh, stuff that's all gone hmm. now because not because it was wrong. It, it was it was actually a very good and and biblically sound system. But it did lead to a lot of confusion, and that's why Paul VI took us now to simply plenary indulgence and partial indulgence. No, you know that if you do this particular work, and and remember, it's not as though it, it, it's sort of this mechanistic. If you do this, you know, it's like you, you put the coin in the can, and as it clinks in the bottom, a soul springs from purgatory, <laughs> as as Johann Tetzel was famous yes. or infamous. Uh, for saying where yes, he kind yes, of yes. he exaggerated and he made he made it too mechanistic. He wasn't mm-hmm. theologically incorrect, but he was he was kind of like a, a TV preacher, you know. I mean, he was just going mm-hmm. on. But but at any rate, the 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 point is, it's not a mechanistic sort of thing because in order to gain a plenary indulgence, you have to do the work that uh, you know that is prescribed by the church. Let's say it's praying the the rosary before an exposed blessed sacrament with at least three or four other people or that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, it's not mechanistic because in order for that plenary indulgence to take effect, you have also got to go to confession within about roughly seven days uh, of uh, attaining this I- indulgence. You've got to uh, be free from, you know, pray for the intentions of the Pope, but you also have to be completely detached from all sins, both mortal and venial. And we can never know the side of the veil, whether or not we've actually attained that, but we can have moral certitude because if we don't meet all those criteria, but we're still in a state of grace, we can attain a partial indulgence. But the church doesn't delineate, you know, micromanage Mm -hmm. what a partial indulgence is, whereas the church tried to do in the past, 100 days, 90 days, 80 days, and so forth to, to make them you know, get a sense of this is more meritorious than that. But now she simply says plenary 
or partial. But the the key is is we want to do this stuff. You know, we want to you know take seriously the the idea of indulgences because we have souls in purgatory that need our prayers. And whenever we we get involved in trying to attain whether it's a plenary indulgence, and some things are simply, you know, if you do them, you will merit a partial indulgence, you know, but the, the yeah. idea is when you do that, not only you're helping souls in purgatory, but you're helping your own life as well, because going to mass, praying the rosary, offering Holy Communion or whatever it is that you're doing is helping your spiritual life as well. So, you know, we don't want to fall in too much of a mechanistic sort of understanding of indulgences. That's the exact thing the church is trying to get us away from. Absolutely. Now, why do you think that intercession, intercessory prayer, why do you think that um, petitioning for each other, for the, the living, for the dead, the dead, for the living, why do you think that God is so, uh, so keen on this? Why... Yeah, you know, it's it's something that that goes all the way back, as you know, even before the time of Christ. You know, as you know, Second Maccabees twelve forty six, we have the story of during the Maccabean revolt there, uh, where you you had the Jewish members of the military that are fighting. You know, to use modern terms, they're fighting for the freedom of Israel mm-hmm. in, a, in a very holy and just cause. And a number of them were killed. And Judas Maccabeus and the others are praying, you know, why did this happen? And then it's revealed they were they had these little amulets under their cloaks, amulets, kind of like a rabbit's foot, you know, mm. not something that would have been mortal. But they were they had these kind of like for good luck. Instead mm-hmm. of trusting Yahweh, they were kind of, you know, like the baseball batter coming up with, you know, he's got to step here and step there and pick up this much dirt and that sort of thing. And and no, that that's the reason why they were killed. It was revealed there. And so what did they do? They took up a collection, sent it to Jerusalem and offered sacrifices for the souls of these men that they would be purified from their sins, you know, that, that these sins that they had committed. So this is something that goes all the way back, even before the time of Christ, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, Jesus alludes to it, it, both with the giving of alms, you know, he he says in Luke 11, 41, give alms and behold, all things are clean to you that the Mm. giving of alms is a way you can be purified and others Mm -hmm. as well. He, he indicates as well in, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Two, whoever sins against the Son, his sins can be forgiven. But he who sins against the Holy Spirit, his sin will be for, will never be forgiven, neither in this age or in the age to come. Meaning that mm. there are some, some sins that can be purified in the next life, and we saw it in First Corinthians three eleven through fifteen too. So this is rooted in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. believed obviously in the New Testament. But I think to get at your question, which is a very good one. Uh, it's really been more fully revealed in the New Testament exactly why this is so in the revelation of Jesus Christ and the fact that through baptism now we are incorporated into the body of Christ. This is a concept the old covenant people of God could never have imagined. Of course, the incarnation is something they could have never uh, uh, imagined. But the fact that we are incorporated into the body of Christ and we're empowered by Christ to be able to communicate graces to each other. This is foundational to the understanding of, of purgatory indulgences and, and so forth. The idea being 
And you can read this in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27. You can read it in Romans chapter 12, the idea that we are a body. You think of it this way, a mortal sin, it, you know, kills the life of God in the soul. That, it, in order for that to be healed, because you're cut off from the body of Christ, you need a sacrament of confession to reestablish you in Christ. This is why the Council of Trent refers to sins forgiven after mortal sin through confession, a, a, a second justification, right? Because uh-huh. you've been cut off and you're reestablished. But if you are in Christ and you commit some of these sins we just talked about in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, you know, the wood, hay, strubble, or yeah. stubble that, that doesn't cut you off from Christ, but wounds you, yeah. well, those kinds of wounds can be healed. And, and when you get this, you know, the image of the body, it makes sense. You know, you think of if, if somebody uh, cut my finger right here, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. looking at my pointer finger and, and cuts into the flesh. Well, it's not cut off. Now, if somebody cut my finger off, then I would need a surgeon to reattach it. But it's not cut off of the body. Uh-huh. The rest of the body organically sends healing agents, right? To coagulate the blood and then to heal and, and so forth. This, yeah. this is the image of purgatory indulgences, you know, the community of saints praying, especially those in heaven praying for us on earth because we are still wounded. We don't pray for them because they're in heaven. We pray to them, but they still can pray for us because we are in need of healing of these various wounds whether they be venial sins or punishment due for, for mortal sins, these are wounds that need to be healed. And I think when you understand that all of a sudden, and I know this was true for me 35 plus years ago when I first saw the truth of the Catholic faith, then you start seeing scriptures like Colossians one twenty four, and they make sense. Where St. Paul says, I fill up that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ in my body, for uh-huh. his body, which is the church. Wait a minute, Paul, how hmm. can you fill up that which is lacking? In the, what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ? Well, objectively speaking, nothing's lacking in the sufferings of Christ because they're of infinite merit. Hmm. However, what's lacking is the application of his infinite merits into our lives. And that's where God has deigned to use us as members of the body of Christ to apply those infinite merits to one another. That is, as long as we're connected in the body of Christ, we're talking about right now, we can affect healing in one another's life. This is why, and you'll see this everywhere in sacred scripture. I mean, St. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 6, he says, if I suffer... It is for your salvation and your consolation, which is made effectual by you enduring the same sufferings which we suffer. So notice how he says, you know, both in Colossians 1.24 and here, we're talking about us being involved in each other's salvation by our own suffering and suffering together with Jesus Christ. And there's many other texts that we could look at that indicate this. I will tell you, all those years ago, this was a revelation as well as a revolution in my life. When I first began to see this, it it transforms your whole spiritual life because mm. now you really see how you and I, Chris, 
have an obligation as members of the body of Christ to pray for one another, pray mm-hmm. for souls in purgatory, and we really can affect healing in one another's life. Now, this is not taking away from Jesus, as I used to accuse Catholics of, you mm-hmm. know, you're taking away from the infinite merits of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, and nothing can be further from the truth. We acknowledge as 1 John 2 says that, that Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. We acknowledge that. He yeah. is the one mediator between God and men, 1 Timothy 2.5. However, he empowers us as Christians through our baptism. We're incorporated into Jesus Christ, and we become little Jesuses, right? Mm-hmm. As members of his body, we can communicate life and love to one another in him, with him, and through him. If you think of it this way, Jesus is our one priest. He is our one high priest, Hebrews 3.1, our unique priest, Hebrews 7.22, says, but all of us are priests, according to mm-hmm. 1 Peter 2, 5 through 9. Of course, St. Peter talks about how that we are a nation of priests. Why? Because we're incorporated into Jesus Christ so that we can offer our sacrifices. As Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies living sacrifices unto God, which is your reasonable worship, right? So we, because we're in Christ, we can offer our bodies. to. Now, how can that be? you know, propitiatory or, or meritorious in any way. Well, it can't unless we are in Jesus Christ. And that's why, I mean, then that idea of suffering with Jesus, Romans chapter eight, verse 17, we will be glorified together with him if we suffer with him, right? It's, you know, mm-hmm. that's the key is by suffering with him. We join our sufferings with the sufferings of Christ. And that's why, they become meritorious for the healing of other members of the body of Christ. And of course, not just those that are on this earth that are in need, but those that are in purgatory as well. And so you, you get that sense, right, in, in Catholic theology. Yes. It just, like I said, it just opens your eyes to, for me, it was going from Protestantism to Catholicism, it just opened my eyes and expanded, you know, my consciousness, so to speak. To, to, to see that, oh my gosh, my prayers, of course, we're, we're members of the body of Christ. So of course, as Col- what 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26 and 27 says, if one member suffers, all suffer, right? If okay. one member rejoices, all rejoice. So my sufferings, my prayers, even my joys can impact other members of the body of Christ. Why would that cease at death? Of course not, because those that are in purgatory are just as much members of the body Mm -hmm. of Christ as we are here. So of course, my prayers and sacrifices are going to help them as well. So it seems to me that there's a few things that you said that were very interesting. I mean, a lot of the things that you said were quite beautiful. One is that we are in this together and that we can help each other along like members of a team or parts of a body. Um, The second one is that your works, if you, you know, if you, if you are, you know, we know that a true, a tree is known by its fruit. We know that you can't really be a good person if you're doing bad things all, all the time. And they're not likely to be, uh, the reverse is not true either that you're a, a rotten person if you keep doing good things, even though you might be, you know, 
crooked in some way because we're all broken people in this in this world you can yes. still you know do the corporate corporal works of mercy and and so on and um refine yourself you know refine yourself through the course of your life and improve yourself and those who are found lacking which is probably a lot of us uh yes. there's still a time a, a period of of purification um it's a little bit, you know, the the straw and the and the hay and the. It reminds me of the three little pigs, uh, and when their judgment came, <laughs> right. you know, it's only the one who built out a brick. But but in the version that we got, you know, in this, the kinder, gentler version that my kids had is like the the pigs all ran to the other pig's house and they were fine at the end. Whereas when I was a kid, like no no no, you got gobbled up, and so I really do prefer that the. The, the pigs are helping each other out uh, right. when, when the when calamity strikes, um, and it feels very it feels very Catholic in 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 that kind of um, the communion the communion of saints and and um, right. that. Do you understand eternity as just a really long period of time, yeah. or do you understand eternity as kind of a different kind of space outside of time, where like okay this this world is over. Let's go over here. Some are going to choose to be with God. Some, because of their right. stubbornness and rebellion, are going to choose to be away from God, which is how right. the Catholic um, catechism describes hell. If right. That's the way I've always seen it. But the, the idea that yeah. there's a period of purification, to me, like that's introducing time back into something which I thought had no time. That's, right. that's eternity. How do, you, how do you think of time in terms of eternity? Yes. Itself? Well, I, I recommend highly a book by uh, Cardinal Ratzinger uh-huh. called Eschatology. It's absolutely brilliant. And is it very he, hard to he, read? <laughs> or it's it's pretty. It's one of his thicker books. You know, uh, I love reading Ratzinger. Yeah. Um, and so he can he can be very succinct, and at times he can <laughs> he can go on. But yeah, this, this is a bigger one, but it, it it's it's really good. It's really insightful in in so many different ways. But when he he gets on the the concept of time, he argues in that book that we have uh, this is an area where we need to develop our understanding, and the reason is in the past there has been sort of a I, I would argue a misunderstanding of somehow in heaven there is no time and of course the church has never taught that but yeah but you know there is the time shall be no more it it's not that time in no sense will will exist but time will not be as we understand it now because in in heaven and in fact cardinal ratzinger points out that there are different kinds of time because we're talking about different states of being. Now, of course, God is in the strict sense outside of time, in an absolute sense. There is no time with God. He is in the eternal now. But even with the angels, there's a kind of time because they have a beginning and no end. They were created. And they, even though they don't go through space the way we do, moving from here to there, they do cause their presence to be felt here and then there in accordance with uh, the will of God. And they're willing to be here and willing to be there. They don't travel through space the way we do here. But there is a sense of motion, right? There is a motion. <laughs> Their presence is because they're not omnipresent. Only God right. is. They cause their presence to be felt here and there. And so there's a sense in which they, in their state of being, and Ratzinger would ar- argue that these are states of being. 
right? You might want to say dimensions. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of, you know, what physicists talk about with dimensions. I'm okay with using that kind of language, but it's really, it's a different state of being. And so for us, this side of the veil is very different than on the other side of the veil, because here, of course, our time is regulated, you know, by the clock, the motion of the physical bodies of our uh, universe and, uh, and so forth, night, day, 24 hours and all of that. But all of that is gone when we die. There is no more. Mm. We don't get tired. We don't go to sleep. We don't get up in the morning. There's not time in that sense, but there still is because St. Thomas Aquinas gets into this as well in the Summa, the fact that we will have bodies indicates that we will still move from here to there. And that's the definition of time is the, you know, the measurement of motion of physical bodies. And so there's some sense of time, but it will be uh, radically different than what we experience now. And so we can't quite fully grasp it, but we can at least get a sense of there will be a kind of time, but it's not time as we understand it now. No, that, that makes, that makes sense. And, you know, of course, sometimes our, even the vocabulary is, is lacking because we we have no idea what it's going to be like. And if we do have an idea, we don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) And what we have a real important distinction to make is we do know certain things about eternity because certain things are revealed. Mm -hmm. But what is even that which is revealed is like still uh, uh, behind a veil. You know, as as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, you know, we now see as through a glass darkly, right? So we do see there are certain things that are revealed and that we can know, but we're like looking through a glass darkly. But then we will see when we see him face to face, we will know even as we are known and so forth. All right. So I, I totally agree that we look through a, um, a glass darkly. That makes perfect sense. And I think the parables that Jesus gives us really work well to help us understand. For me, the purgatory, um, the per- the parable for purgatory is, you know, there's a feast and um, or there's a wedding feast, Jesus says, and everyone's invited. But some people come unprepared and some people come with dirty clothes. And instead of being cast out into where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth and so on, it's kind of nice. Like it seems like a place where you can go really get your clothes clean because you've, you've <laughs> forgot. Um, right. Some people because they were ignorant. Most of us because we were lazy and weak and self-indulgent and uh, we had our, the priorities wrong. But it is a different kind of category of people who would like to be at the feast but are not prepared versus the other kind, which I is how I understand hell. People are like, absolutely no way am I coming to this party. I don't want to be anywhere near it. Um, right. That seems to be like kind of rebellion that gets you. Is that a fair, is that a fair yeah. assessment? Is, I don't, I'm very uncomfortable with the kind of hell where, yeah. oh, well, you just didn't do enough good things or you didn't get to confession in time before you were hit by the car. So Tough luck. I love the way the catechism of the Catholic Church in section 1033, I believe it is, says that hell, by definition, is definitive self-exclusion from communing with God and the blessed. I I think that's so succinct. 
I wish I could be as succinct as I can <laughs> so often because it's, it's, it's so wonderfully done. Because think about it. Yeah, it's yeah. self-exclusion. You determine your eternity. This is, it's not, even though it is true, God, God judges us. You know, certainly Matthew 25, Jesus says, depart. But like any judge, it's not the judge who determines where you're going. He simply declares what you've done mm-hmm. and what you've you've merited if he's a judge that's worth his fault. And of course, yeah. Jesus is. And so the point is, it's, it's definitive self-exclusion. And notice from c- communion with God and the blessed, because really, if you think about it, this is what a mortal sin. And I'll fast forward to section 1037 in the Catechism, which also says... No one is predestined to hell. Sorry, John Calvin, right? Yeah. No one Amen. is predestined to hell. But in order to go to hell, the catechism said, one must freely commit a mortal sin and remain impenitent until death. Mm-hmm. So those two sections really lay it out. And if you think about it, what is a mortal sin? I mean, let's say I commit a sin of, say, adultery. What am I doing? Number one, I'm saying, God, I don't care about you. I don't care about your law. Mm-hmm. What do I care about? Me, <laughs> right? Yeah. I am excluding myself from communion with God. And what am I saying to my wife? Mm-hmm. Right? I, I don't care about you. I don't care about the covenant we established with each other. What do I care about? Me. Mm-hmm. And so it's definitive self-exclusion from God and communion with the blessed. That's the nature of sin. It's the nature of mortal sin. And if I remain in that state, well, hell is just you're getting what you wanted. Mm-hmm. Right? This, mm-hmm. this is what you're doing. And if you're not sorry, if you don't, ask for forgiveness, hell is simply that state of being for all eternity, because that's, you're made for mm-hmm. eternity. We have a naturally immortal soul. We are, we are going somewhere. And if you don't want to be with God, which is what you're, you're saying in any act of a true and free act, which necessarily has to be in order to be mortal, that's what you're saying. I don't want God. I don't want neighbor. Welcome to hell. Yeah. No, that's that's perfect. It really is good news, uh, especially for those of us who are, you know, bumbling around here on this planet, trying our best and failing over and over again. Um, I wish I I could I could listen to you for another hour. I I just have to go get my kid to soccer, <laughs> and I know you have a conference. Um, so I I, would you be so kind as to say a, a blessing for us and uh, our Absolutely. listeners and our world and. We'll leave it there. Absolutely. And I'll ask you to pray for me as well tonight that our that my conference talk goes well. In mm-hmm. the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to you for allowing us to be alive. Mm-hmm. And not just to be physically alive, but to be spiritually alive in you. And for all those listening, if anyone's not spiritually alive in you, we pray for the grace of repentance so that mm-hmm. they will go to confession and be restored, or if need be, be, become baptized and enter into new life in Jesus Christ. But we're thankful to you, Lord, for the many gifts you have given us, the gift of your word, the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, the greatest gift in the universe, the gift of the church, the sacraments, our families, our friends. There's so many gifts that you give us. Lord, please bless us and bless all of them and help us all one day to be joined together in heaven for all eternity. That is our ultimate prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Nails.
Chris Udinitz and Tim Staples recorded this conversation, episode 56, on Tuesday, April 4th, 2023. It was the feast day of St. Isidore, Archbishop of Seville in the 7th century, who was instrumental in the conversion of Aryan Visigothic kings and establishing a liturgy in Spain. The music for our program comes from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band. Check them out at www.gscoasterband.com. Our logo, the image of the dog, comes from a window in a Spanish monastery at Santo Domingo de Silos, which the Dominican friars of England, Scotland, and Wales kindly let me take from their website, www.english.op.org. I'm Chris Odinitz. Thank you so much for listening. Email me at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. I answer every email, and I'll talk to you soon. This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing.